While Mexico and the United States have a history of friendship, it's been, at times, an uneasy one. But the economies of both countries are now closely linked, and in tough economic times, they may rely on each other to pull through. Set all the nationalist rhetoric aside, U.S. capital has been pivotal to building the Mexican economy, and Mexican labor has been pivotal to building the American economy. John Tutino is a professor of history and international affairs at Georgetown University. Mexico has been tied to the U.S. economy since at least the Civil War, arguably since the northern half of Mexico became the U.S. Southwest in 1848. But the forces that shaped Mexico's economic and political future emerged several decades later with the fall of Porfirio Diaz, who ruled for over three decades in 1911. Indigenous rural peoples had been fighting all that time. There is no political situation more uncertain than when a powerful and even successful regime collapses after a third of a century and making no provisions for its succession. As the U.S. did what it could to stave off a civil war in its southern neighbor, various factions emerged in Mexico's revolution. Zapata grounded in the rural tradition of the indigenous South, defending the rights to community autonomy and land via out of the North, but a popular force grounded in the much more commercial, much less indigenous North. But the third faction came together and called itself constitutionalists. They demanded a much more democratic Mexico, but they insistently sought to keep Mexico on course for capitalist development. With the victory of the constitutionalists over Villa and Zapata, the forerunners to what has become today's Institutional Revolutionary Party were formed. And its history has been to do only the amount of popular um, reform that it absolutely has to to maintain itself in power, pacify the opposition, and make its image as the revolutionary government. The 1920s were roaring in the U.S., which meant Mexico was doing a brisk business as well. Just after the Mexican Revolution, up to about 1924, Mexico was the largest oil exporter in the world. And it was a place where U.S. and British companies dominated oil production. The booming world economy kept the model of the Mexican economy with U.S. capital focused on U.S. exports alive through to 1929 and the Depression. President Franklin Roosevelt, upon assuming office, extended to Mexico and much of Latin America a policy of friendship and non-intervention. President Harry Truman, on the first official American state visit to Mexico, reaffirmed FDR's stance. The good neighbor policy which guides the course of our inter-American relations is equally simple. It is the application of the golden rule. It is based upon mutual respect among nations. It is the only road into the future that will lead us to our goal of universal peace and security. Along that road, we shall persevere. Historian John Tutino explains why the good neighbor policy was important during the Great Depression. The U.S. markets for Mexican goods are almost nothing during the Depression. And the tendency that had become during the teens and 20s of Mexicans to migrate to the U.S. for combinations of seeking refuge and opportunity, the opportunities collapsed. And though it wasn't national policy, 
Mexicans faced forced repatriations back to Mexico in the 30s. FDR named his political mentor, Josephus Daniels, ambassador to Mexico. But relations soon became inflamed when Mexico, responding to foreign oil companies and their refusal to bargain with Mexican petroleum workers, nationalized the Mexican oil industry in 1938. The move proved popular with average Mexicans, even inspiring songs. But the move proved far less popular in the United States. The U.S. government in general reacted with the horror and adamance one would expect. But Josephus Daniels counseled FDR that he should negotiate. The real strategy behind it, of course, was that World War II was coming. And it was more important to have the oil, have access to the oil, than to have a spat with Mexico and not have access to the oil. World War II provided a chance for Mexican labor to fill a void in the American job market. A formal work program called the Bracero Program was hammered out between the two countries, and Mexican exports once again flowed northward. They focused on providing U.S. with food exports, strategic materials exports, energy exports, and Bracero labor. A sidelight that needs to be added. The U.S. drew and drafted into World War II residents of the United States, not citizens. At minimum, 500,000 Mexican citizens fought in the U.S. Army during World War II. The American economy continued to depend on Mexican workers. And Mexicans were, after a few years spent in the States, often able to reach middle-class status back home. Across rural Mexico, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, before, during, and after the Bracero program, when you asked the taxi driver in a small town how he got his taxi, he said, I went to the States for several years, got my taxi, and then stayed home. It was an avenue to social mobility that was temporary. And yes, some stayed. The post-war era was, by and large, a period of economic growth in Mexico, and the international community particularly the United States, was willing to give the country's one-party system, the now firmly established PRI, the benefit of the doubt. Mexico was a model for third world development. It was how to do it right. And we said, well, the redistribution and the political participations will get better over time. Still, there were Mexicans unhappy with their government. And just before the 1968 Olympics, Students protesting for political reforms and freedom of assembly were killed in what's now called the Tlatelolco Massacre. It was middle-class students who rose and got shot, not the workers and peasants that the regime claimed to represent, who pretty much stayed at home. In the 1960s and 70s, Middle Eastern oil-producing countries boycotted sales to the U.S., creating an energy crisis north of the border, and Mexican oil filled the void. But when the boycott ended, prices crashed, driving Mexico into deep debt, which lasted from the 1980s all the way through to the 90s. Historian John Tutino. There's a famous scene in which the Mexican treasury minister in the early 80s, a man named Jesus Silva Herzog, drawn to face the bankers in New York City in 81-82, in which the bankers looked at him and said, Mr. Secretary, you owe us $100 million and you can't pay. You have a problem. And he looked back and said, no, my banker friends, we owe you $100 million. We can't pay. You have a problem. 
The economic crisis also created the first political fissures in the PRI. In 1988, the presidential election pitted the liberal Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas against Carlos Salinas, who took the country down a path toward globalization. He brilliantly used the PRI's apparatus to turn against everything the PRI had historically stood for. He broke the unions. NAFTA was his idea. NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was a treaty to more closely integrate the economies of all three North American countries. U.S. President George Herbert Walker Bush welcomed the agreement. And for Mexico particularly, especially, the NAFTA is a bold undertaking made possible by President Salinas' brave reforms to invigorate the Mexican economy. Why did NAFTA matter? Almost everything that NAFTA did was already happening. But by making it a treaty with the United States, he guaranteed that Mexico couldn't change its mind and return to nationalist, pro-peasant, pro-worker policies. Though NAFTA was negotiated by the Bush and Salinas administrations, it was President Bill Clinton who signed it in 1994. But in 2000, Mexico's PRI finally lost its hold on the presidency to the National Action Party, the PAN, with the election of Vicente Fox. People now forget the early optimism of the Fox presidency in 2000 and into 2001. There were actually open and believable conversations about turning NAFTA to a union, ally the European Union, and then 9-11 happened. The Bush administration lost interest. U.S. foreign policy became xenophobic. Border patrol became everything. And so that option ended. Mexicans in the 2000s came across the border to work legally and illegally. And making tensions between the two countries worse, drug cartels in Mexico had been gaining power. With the 2006 election of Felipe Calderón, also of the PAN, Mexico took a new approach to fighting the cartels. Calderón listened to powerful advice from the United States in which he was convinced that it was time to mobilize the military against the supply of drugs. Expecting a much stronger U.S. effort on the U.S. side of the border to interdict arrivals and a much stronger U.S. effort to block armaments going to Mexico. Neither the Bush administration nor the Obama administration has seriously blocked arms shipments nor done anything like military force to stop coming in. The militarization of the drug war on one side of the border has led to the PAN's fall from power. Now the PRI's Enrique Peña Nieto is set to assume Mexico's presidency, creating an uncertain future, where a party which held all power is now returning. I don't think we know what's going to happen going forward. Peña Nieto can't lead the old PRI, even though he is from an old PRIista family. It can't be what it was. It doesn't have its left. It's been out of power for 10 years. Mexico's economy is growing faster and more steadily than the U.S. economy, with all its traditional inequities. It's increasingly a middle-class urban country. Is angry with the drug war. My own view is we're going to learn, and that anybody who thinks they know what's coming is likely to be wrong. <laughs>